And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Uh, we are very honored and uh, pleased that we can have with us on the morning show for this 20th of January, Dr. Art Sear, Clawson Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, Director of the Clawson Center, author of After the Cold War, a columnist whose work appears uh, uh, in newspapers uh, all across the country and uh, outside of our borders for that matter. And uh, uh, Dr. Sear is actually our single most frequent morning show guest. And uh, we always feel honored to have him uh, aboard to offer his uh, perspective on various things going on uh, in our country and, and in our world. And there are plenty of things going on in our country right now, of course. So uh, I'm really uh, exceptionally grateful to have this opportunity to speak with Professor Sear. Happy New Year, Dr. Art Sear, and welcome back to The Morning Show. Well, Happy New Year to you, Greg, and thank you for the kind invitation. You're always so gracious. It's a real tonic in the morning. <laughs> Glad to be speaking with you. Uh, so your, your most recent column uh, spoke of the the shocking events, you use the word shocking to describe uh, what uh, unfolded uh, in our nation's capital on uh, Wednesday, January 6th, uh, uh, two weeks ago, as, as people are, are listening to this, uh, this morning show conversation. Um, first of all, I wonder if on a somewhat personal note, uh, if we could hear what your own sort of personal, visceral reaction was to what unfolded on that day and uh to what extent were you completely surprised did did you think this was completely unexpected or in a sense uh in some ways inevitable or some mix of the two well i guess i wasn't surprised given the way we live and the way the summer unfolded with lots of demonstrations and lots of violent activity, by no means all of it from the far right or from Trump supporters, as you well know, sir, and our listeners do too. I was surprised that they were able to penetrate, uh, the rioters were able to penetrate the Capitol. I'm very sad, as is everyone, or everyone should be, about the loss of life, uh, the five people who were killed, and there have been at least one ancillary death that may be related to that. Um, I was kind of surprised that they penetrated the Capitol for a long time. I haven't been to Washington for a while, partly because of the pandemic. Um, but uh, for a long time after 9-11, you saw tremendous security, especially around principal government buildings, including heavy concrete caissons and um, uh, lot, lots of police presence. And apparently we became complacent, which is too bad, obviously with 2020 hindsight. One of the things that you say in your column, not mincing words whatsoever, is there can be no serious doubt that President Trump incited the riot. Um, what, what led you to uh, say that statement and as plainly as you did? Well, uh, my statement... Uh, echoes broad media commentary, especially in mainstream media, and especially from uh, you and your colleagues in public radio and television, that I agree the president's incendiary rhetoric incited this, and it's uh, a good argument for a return to tradition in terms of um, uh, exercising restraint and uh, choosing your words carefully if you're 
fortunate enough and also powerful enough to be president of the United States. One word of, I don't know that it's exactly reassurance, maybe it is, is that uh, in, in that column you wrote, this violent spectacle is neither unique nor a sign that our government institutions face fundamental threat to their existence. And, uh, and, and, in, and in that respect, you're probably uh, not in full alignment with at least some in the media who have painted it in, in, uh, in darker terms. Uh, so so I, I'd be very curious to know uh, exactly where you're coming from in terms of, of offering that word of clarification or reassurance. Our, our system survives. It was a one-time event in terms of attacking the Capitol building and despite the physical violence and all the turmoil, including lots of media turmoil and efforts to whip up concern by various media personalities and outlets, the Electoral College vote was uh, confirmed and the system did work despite this violent incident. When I read your words, I was reminded of a governor, and I don't remember who it is now, but uh, I saw her on television not long after, uh, I believe it was the Three Mile Island uh, nuclear accident, and uh, this 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 governor who had tended to be fairly positive when it comes to nuclear energy in trying to put that incident in perspective said what, what, it, what people are forgetting is uh, these various safeguards for this kind of event, they did work. They did work. Yes, it was a frightening incident, but the safeguards did what they were supposed to do. And uh, I mean, not that not that all harm was completely uh, prevented, but in a sense, the one truth sort of blotted out the other. And I think you're trying to say something a bit similar that uh, that in some ways this was a test, and it was a frightening test, but it's one that you think are fundamental institutions survived, which is something we should not be overlooking. That's a very imaginative analogy. Three Mile Island, I believe your reference for those who might not be so well informed as you is to a nuclear meltdown that occurred at a nuclear reactor uh, back in the 1970s, right? I, th- I, th- I think so, yeah. Yeah, well, you brought it up. Uh, I mean, I don't remember. I don't remember the decade. It's many, many years ago. But uh, science, scientific disaster. It was contained. I don't know how do we relate this in re- realistic terms. A scientific um, occurrence with the very human violence that we saw in Washington. Well, the Soviet Union, much later on, not long before the collapse of that uh, that. Uh, unattractive and rather evil system had a similar nuclear accident at Chernobyl. They covered it up. A lot of people were killed. It was a truly physical disaster that went well beyond Three Mile Island. Uh, That gets, I think, thinking out loud is, since you brought it up, that gets at a fundamental strength of a free system, easy to overlook because we are, uh, a democracy is by definition disorderly and uh, we have a lot of different interests at play in this very diverse country, especially. But we're able to handle things better, actually, than a dictatorship. Uh, 
fortunately, the Soviet dictatorship, a particularly evil system, is, is gone, in effect, despite the uh, lesser evils of contemporary Russia. We're actually better suited for lots of complicated reasons to handle natural disasters. Hmm. Interesting, you brought up Three Mile Island. I, uh, I never would have thought of that analogy. Well, the, again, the, the connection that I draw is something really frightening that was a, a very scary test. And when you, in a sense, pass a test, uh, there should be some measure of relief. And, uh, and so we should all, as Americans, feel some relief that uh, despite this terrible threat to this fundamental process, uh, that that process did go forward with those, uh, those men and women on Capitol Hill courageously stepping forward and continuing the process despite what they had just experienced. And so that is something to celebrate on a otherwise really dark day. Uh, yes, quite right. I, uh, I, I never would have thought of that analogy. It's always very interesting being on your program. <laughs> so something else you said in that column, I think is, is really important. Uh, when, when you think, back to what happened on January 6th and the perpetrators of that uh, attempted insurrection, um, you write at one point that one of, the, one of the kind of scary realities of the current day is that criminals can shelter in the extremes of the political spectrum. I want to read that again. Criminals can shelter in the extremes of the political spectrum. What are you getting at there? Well, just pointing out reality that we've had a lot of violent crime uh, this year that's a function of different things, including the, the basic fact of life that people are cooped up um, in uh, unusual and abnormal ways. Uh, if you decide to riot, you can take shelter. Um, you can take shelter beneath the uh, rationale, not justification, but rationale of the far right or the far left. Mind you, President Trump was quick to denounce the, uh, uh, the rioting that occurred, and he may even be sincere about that, but the fact remains that his rhetoric encouraged that, and criminals at both ends of the political spectrum, at least in terms of the rationale and justification they're seeking, in public can use the political system up to a point, but we do have the rule of law. And I think one of the positive things, I hope one of the positive things resulting from the uh, shocking and violent and, uh, and lethal riot in Washington was that public officials at the state and local government from both parties uh, around the country will be a lot more active and a lot more proactive in using the, using, uh, the law and law enforcement to put down the civil unrest. You pointed out something in this column that uh, I'm, I'm not sure I had actually heard of, or I think I heard about it, but did not, in a sense, realize its significance. Uh, this is when you, uh, you tell the, the reader about uh, a document that was created and signed by, I believe, all living former U.S. defense secretaries. Uh, a letter directed to President Trump and or his closest uh, advisors. Uh, 
first of all, can you remind our listeners uh, about this and 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 maybe uh, underscore for us why you you thought this was something pretty momentous? Well, it was an important public event. Dick Cheney. Um, I don't think it was momentous. It was noteworthy, especially because of the tremendous alarm and concern nonstop since the election by a lot of our media that President Trump might do something extreme, such as using the military to stay in power. I was responding to that. Uh, there's no evidence that the president has done that, but like a lot of news nowadays, I wouldn't use the term fake news, but it's speculation in the media, alarmism in the media. And uh, Dick Cheney, to his credit, who was Secretary of Defense in the George H.W. Bush administration, during the first Gulf War, when he and President Bush and Colin Powell, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time, I, I believe, carried out the first Gulf War, the UN uh, sanctioned and US-led liberation of um, Kuwait from occupation by the uh, by armed forces from, from Iraq. The uh, former Defense Secretary, as well as Vice President, lined up all, rather quickly, I think, all the living former secretaries of defense underscoring the importance of uh, the rule of law and the fact that no president has the right to use the military arbitrarily in this country. That's all. Uh, it was momentous only in the sense that this is something that the media has whipped up, that politicians have exploited on the other side. Um, Trump himself, as we're recording this, he's got one more day in office. There's no indication that he's going to be trying to use the military. If he did, he'd fail. It's an illegal order to seize control of the levers of power. It's inspired by the fact that uh, in other, other countries, not just in poor areas of the world, that's often the default position for a leader who's under threat or the military itself will take over. That's very contrary to the American tradition. And our listeners should be reassured by the fact that for all the terrible news, and all the scary speculation in our 24-7 news cycle nowadays, we have the rule of law and a very stable system. I guess what struck me as momentous is that all of the living former U.S. defense secretaries would deem it necessary or advisable to craft such a document. I mean, which in a sense says something that goes without saying, except in this instance, they seem to have thought that this needed to be stated categorically. I mean, that seems at least unprecedented, if not momentous. Unprecedented, perhaps. Uh, it shows the momentous influence of the media rather than anything the president has actually done so far. Right. Yeah, it shows how important the media is in raising concern, raising alarm, and going beyond the facts into speculation. An awful lot of the news nowadays with our 24-7 cycle is endless speculation and entertainment. So are you saying that the and defense... Not, not reporting the facts, excuse me. So are you saying that the defense secretaries did that uh, simply to calm the American public? That that was... I guess, that, uh, I guess I, well, you would have to ask Dick Cheney and his, his senior uh, uh, colleagues in putting, up the, in, in putting together the letter. I don't speak for anybody but myself. Right. I think I, I would guess uh, calming the public was certainly one uh, motivation, along with uh, reminding the president that his power is limited and we have the rule of law. 
I think I think it was a good move. I don't think it was self-serving. I think it was a good move, which is how uh, very quickly, apparently, one former defense secretary was able to line up all his colleagues. Right. right. I yeah. guess what I'm speculating that is. Yes, that... you are absolutely yeah. speculating, and that's the nature of your program. My point was about uh, quote news unquote programs that have very little factual information but fill up the time. Right. Uh, fill up right. the air time with a lot of hot air and right. and mostly entertainment and speculation. A development that began in the 1980s with the um, uh, with the uh, abolition by the Reagan administration of the Fairness Doctrine and a practical reaction to the fact that the old, traditional, very limited, several national news networks, uh, ABC, NBC, and especially CBS, and also PBS, at that point well established, the public broadcasting system were being replaced by a lot of different cable organizations, and they were anxious to have the freedom to go beyond federal restrictions and uh, how the news is reported and discussed. Really important and not much discussed in the media. I'm really glad you brought it up. Thank you. We're speaking with Dr. Art Seer, Claussen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, paying his first visit to the morning show in, uh, in 2021. Um, in another recent column, uh, you, in a sense, contrast this stormy departure by uh, outgoing President uh, Donald Trump uh, to the rather low-key entrance of, of, uh, of Joe Biden as our president-elect uh, to be inaugurated uh, later today. Uh, although this column dates back to, I think, December, um, but, but after his, 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 his victory. But uh, I, in, at, at more than one point in that column, you used the word low-key, <laughs> to describe the way President Biden was kind of, uh, President-elect Biden was kind of putting things together and moving forward as President-elect. Uh, In what respects has he used a, a low-key approach, and in what way do you think that's perhaps been helpful at this point in time? He uh, ran a campaign that did not involve the usual excitement of a campaign. Age may have something to do with it. Um, he is our oldest inaugurated president. The, uh, but beyond that, I, I don't think he's lost that much energy since his very energetic 2012 vice presidential reelection campaign when he was highly visible, highly active. Critics would say he served as a hatchet man for President Obama and the administration. He certainly was a very, very aggressive opponent of um, the Republican vice presidential nominee, Paul Ryan. It's a change in style that I'm sure was calculated um, I thought it seemed surprising to me, and I thought he might be in some trouble because he wasn't running a more aggressive, more colorful campaign, but that just is a reminder to me that I'm a professor sitting on the sidelines. The campaign worked, and uh, he did one, and win, and he won by a significant margin. In that column, you mention a couple of his uh, first uh, cabinet appointments, uh, Anthony Blinken for Secretary of State and Janet Yellen, uh, to be Secretary uh, of the Treasury, uh, and of course he's he's announced many other uh, nominations uh, since then. Do you yeah. have any kind of general feelings about uh, the kind of team that he appears to be assembling for uh, his upcoming administration? 
yeah, they're like himself. They tend to be Washington pros, being on, uh, several of them, including um, um, the Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, and National Security Advisor. In particular, people he's worked with pretty closely over the years, not just during the Obama administration. And that's in that sense, it'll be over. Critics will, uh, Trump supporters will say that just underscores the fact that the uh, uh, the swamp is back, or the uh, established order that President Trump ran against is back in power. I think one reason why the low-key campaign worked so well is because it was such a contrast with Trump, who's uh, constantly in the limelight, constantly in the media, uh, can't stop tweeting, uh, can't, can't keep quiet for any length of time. Uh, a couple of the president's supporters with whom I'm acquainted, I'm certainly not a supporter of President Trump's, that said he can't get out of his own way. He's his own worst enemy. The Wall Street Journal, which at times on policy terms has been uh, sympathetic to the Trump administration, quite rightly from their point of view. They've been very stridently and strongly and effectively critical of uh, Trump's overblown and bombastic style. Hmm. I wonder if uh, you were uh, surprised at the moves that were made that, for instance, banned the president uh, indefinitely from Twitter and other major uh, social media platforms that, uh, uh, to some extent at least, have have silenced uh, outgoing President Trump. Did you, did you foresee that that was going to happen, uh, or did that come as a surprise? Uh, no, I did not foresee that, the, that he'd be banned from Twitter. Uh, some people are playing that up as George Orwell, 1984, that it is suppression of free speech and so on. Uh, do you think there are, do we need to ask some questions uh, about what, what those kind of decisions mean? Congress is asking questions. Another example, to my mind, of the, the system working, there is, there is movement, and I think that will increase now that the Democrats have... Um, uh, have control of both houses of Congress. And since it was a Republican president, I think there may well be some Republican sympathy with efforts to apply antitrust law to these huge media companies. I think that's, that, that's a very healthy sign. Um, they don't have, they have de facto monopolies, not de jure monopolies. I think it's a good uh, opportunity for other entrepreneurs to come onto the scene. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how much real competition there is to uh, dominant engines and dominant corporations like um, like Twitter, Google. If you were in a position to advise uh, our next president, Joe Biden, uh, what would your advice to him be? Uh, to be himself. In, in politics, you're torn and pulled in endless different directions. He's a great survivor. He's certainly very durable. I was, uh, I met him at least twice. I worked for two decades at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Um, learned a lot. I'm very proud of what John Riley, the longtime president, he was there for 30 years. Quite an extraordinary run as head of any kind of nonprofit, educational, any institution, uh, especially in the public, in the public arena. Uh, he had been Hubert Humphrey's foreign policy assistant back in the 1960s. Humphrey was um, a very successful senator, very, someone I've admired most of my life. 
Uh, he uh, was a close ally of President Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson in the Senate, getting, getting the very ambitious legislative program of that era through, especially after President Johnson tragically became president as a result of the Dallas assassination. Uh, then Humphrey was Johnson's vice president, was almost elected president in 1968. Uh, John was hired in Chicago in part because of his extensive Washington contacts. Uh, Joe Biden was elected to the Senate, um, I, very possibly the youngest in history, when he was around 30 in 1972. And senators, congressmen, Washington officials of that, that time, we, we had the contacts to bring them to Chicago. I was impressed. Uh, I used to tell our very fine staff at the council that remember in this business, we deal with the great, the near great, and the end great, the passing parade of egos um, and people who were quite important and people who thought they were important. It could be a bit, uh, it could be a, a bit wearing over time. Uh, Joe Biden is a very authentic person. One thing that really struck me is his staff really likes him, which is not al always the case in any organization, and especially in Washington, among Washington tights. I, I uh, concluded early on that means a lot. Uh, he's very easy to deal with. Uh, he is quite loquacious and was even more so then probably. Uh, John was a fanatic about balanced budgets and effective operation. He was a successful executive. He, um, uh, we never had a deficit and we kept the budget growing in real terms and that was the era of stagflation and life was tough. Uh, he was a fanatic about time as well, and I have one clear memory of uh, uh, John Riley saying about five minutes to nine as we were concluding a dinner to uh, Senator Biden, well, we have time for one more question. And I kid you not, at 9.20, 9.25, Joe was still talking, like Hubert Humphrey and others. He just could not, he could not shut himself up, so we'll see how... Uh, We'll see how the discipline of the presidency affects him. But I, I, I was impressed by him. He, he's likable, he's authentic, and smart. He's very, very smart, a quick-witted person. It's not always the case, even with people who've amassed considerable political success and power. Hmm. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about somebody else whom you wrote about recently, namely Vladimir Putin. Uh, ah, and not you, so nice, yeah. no. Right. Also smart, however. <laughs> yeah. You uh, wrote back uh, in uh, about a, a, a press conference that occurred back on December 19th, and you say the main news is that there was none, <laughs> save for coy hints that he may change the Constitution to remain in office beyond 2024. So that is uh, an interesting prospect. But from there, you really go on to kind of uh, explore the question of... of how nervous should we be about Russia? And what kind of a player are they on, uh, on the world scene? And uh, among the points that you make in this column is that Russia is probably a lot more nervous about us and others uh, than we are about them. I mean, that there is a certain fragility to, the, to their place in the world. I mean, uh, f f uh, even though we none of us would probably use the word fragility to describe Vladimir Putin, but um, uh, what do you want us to understand about Russia and our relationship to them at this point in time? Uh, Russia is a very weak country economically. 
In fact, they, they were literally about to collapse in terms of the structure of the economy when he um, achieved national power right around the turn of the century. And through skillful management, taking maximum advantage of their natural resources, especially petroleum, but uh, there are others as well. Um, he, he was able to engineer recovery and he's been able to operate largely behind the scenes in a way that has permitted him to maintain control, obviously, while facilitating um, uh, within limits, while facilitating business development. It's quite a performance. Uh, his press conference, this is an annual event that's become now a tradition. It's invariably interesting. He went on for four and a half hours. Uh, he's almost 70. It's, it's a testament to his energy and, uh, and personal discipline, I think, and his intelligence. He answered a wide range of questions, uh, unlike the orchestrated uh, media events in that dictatorship during the rest of the year involving Putin. He, uh, uh, the international media was present. It was not a, a rehearsed exercise. And uh, uh, at least in terms of a portion of the people who were there. And he equipped himself very well. He's extremely intelligent, despite the fact that they operate on a weak base in, in total contrast to the United States of America. Uh, he and the clique around him have been able to uh, exercise, I think, remarkable international influence, especially in the Middle East. Uh, Trump and associates, including his son-in-law, you deserve some credit for um, brokering um, uh, diplomatic recognition agreements between Israel and the uh, UAE, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman, uh, increasing Israel's security in the region. Uh, I believe that is a major step forward, building on the Egypt and Jordan peace treaties that were initiated by President Carter a long time ago. But basically, Russia is the most important outside player in the Middle East today, especially but not exclusively regarding Syria. The Russians have been able to work out a de facto, meaning Putin, um, modus vivendi at least, with Netanyahu and associates in the government of Israel, just extraordinary. At the end, I referred to George H.W. Bush and um, associates who prosecuted the remarkably successful Gulf War. 1990-91. Afterwards, they didn't rest on their victory, but Bush and Secretary of State James Baker especially engaged the most extraordinary, uh, exhausting, especially for Baker, uh, diplomacy. Baker made something like six trips to the Middle East from Washington during the first few months of 1991 after the Allied victory in the war. Uh, organized and orchestrated a major peace conference in, uh, in Madrid. Uh, the, uh, the limited sovereignty of a Palestinian state is a direct result of that process. The U.S. Uh, was the dominant international player in the Middle East for the first time since, the, um, since Eisenhower's first term way back in the 1950s. All of that has been frittered away by successor administrations. Uh, the final peace treaty was at an Oslo uh, conference at the beginning of the Clinton administration. That's how long it took. 
and uh, Bill Clinton was there to take credit, but uh, Clinton, Bush, Obama, I think we've had a steady fading of serious U.S. foreign policy and the kind of literally exhausting, disciplined effort that's required. And Russia has replaced us. It shows just how, along with personal survival in a truly dangerous environment, it shows just how effective um, Putin is. In your it's, a reminder, it's a reminder to us that the world remains a dangerous place. Rhetoric, right. PR, uh, media activity is no substitute for real hard foreign policy work. Right. You write at one point, our greatest danger is our own lack of serious leadership. And you're talking especially, of course, about uh, the landscape of the Middle East. Um, I, I want to also take a couple of minutes to uh, talk about Brexit, which you wrote about uh, uh, recently, telling us that at the end of this month, uh, well, no, the end of, it was a year ago, actually, wasn't it? At, at the end of January 20th. <laughs> it's going, been going on forever. Right, yeah. yeah, the United Kingdom. <laughs> formally departed from uh, the European Union, but uh, then the matter of kind of hammering out the details of that has proven to be really, really difficult. One of the things you said was that uh, Theresa May, who of course had perpetual struggles as prime minister, she actually worked really hard in what you say was a very businesslike fashion to try to hammer out some of the details of Brexit, uh, all to no avail. And now her successor, Boris Johnson, who couldn't be more different in terms of personality and approach, has, in a sense, been entrusted with the, the, the same assignment. So uh, tell us where all of this has ultimately gone. Well, Britain has left the European Union in, in a... Um what I would see is a kind of breezy seat of the pants fashion. Let's leave the details till later. Let's, uh, let's all make general statements together and have media opportunities. And then we'll let the civil servants and others take care of the details. Theresa May, to her personal credit, she didn't last long as prime minister, worked out three very detailed agreements with the bureaucrats in Brussels, who administer the European Union. And all three were voted down by parliament and uh, a lot of people in her own conservative party participated in voting her down and she was gone. Last January, uh, Breezy Boris Johnson got a uh, very general agreement with Brussels. He literally flew there, it was a very short meeting, flew back, the details will be worked out during the year. And civil servants on both sides have worked doggedly. Like a lot of politicians, it wasn't until the last minute, literally, as the year was almost up, that the that Boris Johnson and his senior political associates really got engaged, and they did work out a deal with the European Union. Uh, there are two, so Britain is out, and we'll see how Britain does. I think the industrial economies, especially in the West, are wealthy enough, and uh, our international economy is secure enough that certainly Britain will survive. They're the number five economy in the world, and that will probably continue. They are a truly international uh, trading nation and investment nation. Hmm. But um, since World War II, Britain's investment and heavy trade, especially heavy trade, has been more and more concentrated in the continent. And they will have a major challenge uh, in terms of adjusting to what will be new barriers for goods. Uh, there won't be tariffs, but customs, other kinds of technical regulations are guaranteed to complicate uh, trade. 
with the continent. You mentioned in this column that one of the sticking points in these negotiations over Brexit was fishing rights, of all things. And uh, it, it sounds like uh, there are sort of big reasons just beneath the surface that made fishing rights uh, such, a, such a, a challenging point to overcome. Can you explain well, that? Um, it's not a subject I'm an expert on and, um, and fortunately don't have to become an expert on the ins and outs of um, trade and finance and investment in the European Union and, um, and travel. But agricultural interests tend to be powerful in every country. Uh, and that's certainly too, true in Britain. There's also nationalism involved. We don't want these foreigners in our waters. And the um, uh, east of the British Isles, the fish, fishing grounds are rich enough that um, there are opportunities for conflict. But uh, it became a kind of symbol of our need to get away from Europe. And so lots of emotion, I think, was involved along with the specifics of how much should we be compensated when uh, fishing boats from other countries are in or near our waters. Hmm. Agriculture, agriculture, the farmers are powerful in every country, including the United States, to a remarkable degree. Hmm. They're a shrinking percentage of industrial nation populations. I also appreciated in this column that you uh, brought up a name that I haven't thought of in the longest time, former Prime Minister Edward Heath. And I think you would probably characterize him as, in a sense, kind of a an unsung hero and uh, unjustly forgotten uh, figure of importance in all this. He, um, yeah, he was um, done in by the uh, very powerful labor unions in Britain, especially the miners and a miners' strike uh, that was extremely painful, literally, for the British during a cold winter was really crucial to doing in his government. Um, polls in 1970 showed that the Labour government, Labour Party, government led by Harold Wilson, was going to return for, to office yet again after they'd won in 64 disparately and then in 66 more decisively. And there was a surprise victory and Heath came in. Uh, traditionally aristocrats or very, very talented not non-aristocrats, Benjamin Disraeli, the great 19th century prime minister, big rival of uh, Gladstone, the liberal leader, is a dramatic contrary example. But certainly into the 1960s, aristocrats were in charge of the conservative party, slowly in a complicated way became more open and more democratic. Both Heath and uh, Margaret Thatcher were from relatively modest backgrounds. And I think um, he may have suffered personally as, as a result of the fact that he was such a path-breaking figure. Uh, he was never really part of the establishment and he didn't have the policy success ultimately that Margaret Thatcher had and he didn't have the colorful domineering personality that she had. Um, I met him once when I was a graduate student. I wanna keep bringing up personal encounters here, but uh, I, I was very fortunate to spend a year in England when I was a graduate student working on my PhD dissertation. Um, and I, uh, the British tend to be very generous and humane, especially where Americans are concerned. And an American student easily got access to the uh, three-party conferences. I was working on the third party, the liberals, not the liberal Democrats. And I uh, met him in a receiving line at the Tory uh, 
conference. He was literally an extremely stiff person. People tend to make uh, fun of that. Uh, he had a bone-crushing handshake. <laughs> and uh, it, it was an interesting encounter, not a typical politician. He seemed to be a very shy man. And I was a very shy graduate student. Uh, he finally, uh, after my hand recovered, he, he said, who are you? And I said, uh, he said, who are you? Where are you from? And I said, well, I'm a graduate student. I'm working with Sam Beer at Harvard. And he said, how is Sam? Uh, so that gave us something to talk about briefly. <laughs> I met Margaret Thatcher as well. The liberals weren't getting a lot of attention. And as I say, our British friends, there really is a special relationship. Unlike the rest of Europe, which the British aren't so warm about uh, historically or currently. I uh, was having lunch with a liberal MP, member of parliament in their cafeteria, and a young conservative politician by the name of Margaret Thatcher was walking by and he wanted to introduce me to her. So I got up. Uh, another bone crushing handshake. We've all encountered the tiresome alpha male who uh, turns a handshake into an arm wrestling contest. But Margaret Thatcher is the one woman I've in my life shaken hands with who had the same problem. She immediately turned it into it. And I was, since it was a female, I was totally surprised and it really hurt. I believe my knees buckled slightly and she seemed to have a faint smile and she noticed my distress. <laughs> my two prime minister stories involving handshakes. Uh, uh. She, she was long, long before she became prime minister, but she was already a rising star in uh, the Conservative Party. And she was, of course, the first female prime minister in Britain. And uh, we followed their lead in lots of positive ways. I'm sure we'll have a woman president sooner rather than later in this country. Mm. Not necessarily Kamala Harris, let me add. Well, on that note, I appreciate uh, all that you've shared with us, including the uh, illuminating personal anecdotes and uh, your thoughts on uh, uh, matters both here and abroad uh, in these uh, very, very interesting times in which we live. Dr. Art Seer Clausen, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business. It's always a pleasure, sir. I look forward to our next visit very much. Thanks for being part of the morning show today. Professor Berg, likewise. You're always very gracious, and it's always enjoyable as well as interesting. Thank you.